following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Hi, guys. Hi. Uh, Mick was here last week with you and told me what an amazing bunch of people you are. And uh, so it's great to be here. And it was really awesome yesterday and to see so many people come out on a Saturday morning to develop some skills around how we hang out with other people was, was fantastic. So this morning, I really grappled with um, what to share with you. And ultimately, where I've ended up is I have some, something, just basically one thing to share with you. But uh, in true Duncan style, I've got some stories to tell you. So I'm sure I don't tell them as well as Mick does. He's the ultimate storyteller. But, um, but I do have some stories to tell. And I feel that God would have me share some of these with you. Um, and the first one is, is quite a personal story. When Mick and I, and just as background here, uh, when we got married, uh, as his brother said, people will have their fingers crossed when you walk down the aisle. Because for both of us, our parents had split up. Uh, we hadn't come from Christian homes. So we didn't know much about how to do marriage. Uh, we've managed 37 years this month. Woohoo! <laughs> I tell you, it's not been easy. But, um, <laughs> but we certainly didn't know much about parenting. And we didn't really have any models to look at. So... Many, many years ago, when we first um, gave birth to our first bundle of joy, we were down in Dunedin, and our little Emily was born. And we were like, wow, you know, a new life. It's such a miracle. But, like, how do you do that? <laughs> you know? and, and so our little Em, she came into the world, and she was a beautiful little bundle. She had big blue eyes, and she had wild, curly blonde hair, and she had a wild heart. And our little M, when she got to about two, I'm like, she was the classic terrible two. She, you know, you draw a line, our M had to leap over it. You know, you said no, she just wanted to do it more. Anyone got one of those? That, yeah, got some hands there. That, that was our M. Delightful, but she was challenging. By the time M was three, and we had another little one, Tom, Mick and I had decided that God was inviting us to go and live in the Philippines. So we felt that we should go and we should live in a really poor community. And so we took our two little ones, Tom was nine months and Em was nearly three, and we lived in the Philippines. So we lived in a really poor little kind of shack, and we lived with thousands and thousands of other people. And when you walked out our door, it was mud uh, actually walked in the door, it was mud. Um, and it was a very, very difficult physical environment. It was community and there were lots of people around us, but we didn't talk their language and it was, it was a huge challenge. And for the children, as soon as they walked out of the door, of course, the big blue eyes and they both had the blonde hair, it was like, wow, Emily, Emily, Thomas, Thomas. And, you know, Emily was a little superstar in some ways in that there was something about that that she quite liked. Um, but it was also quite a challenging environment. They went to a local school. They went to a Filipino school. Uh, they had to work in two languages. So it wasn't easy, and Em always struggled with it. 
So by the time she got to um, 11, we felt that she was beginning to struggle more and more with friendships and language and things. And one of the threads about us leaving the Philippines and coming home was Emily. And she was, she was just getting to that stage of life where she needed to be, you know, perhaps more with kids who felt similar to her and who could at least talk her language. So we came back to New Zealand. She was 11. We went into our Lower Hut. We went to live in a, again in a poor community here in New Zealand. But she went to a local intermediate school. And we thought this would be great. You know, she's starting afresh intermediate with other kids starting fresh. But for Em, it was very, very stressful. And over that year, she, she spent a lot of energy making friends, and she did. But she also, she picked out all of her eyebrows. She picked out all her eyelashes. Um, it's an it's a anxiety condition. So we could see that she was really pretty stressed in that space. So she got through those two years, and at the end of her intermediate years, we had uh, decided that the next big phase of our life was to be in Melbourne. And so we're like, okay, guys, you know, we're off to Melbourne. By this time, we had another little one, um, Jo. She was about six when we came back, so she was about eight when we went off to Melbourne. Em was hitting 13, and Tom was 11. And Em was excited. Melbourne, new city, big smoke, sounds really cool. She's going to go to high school. So we arrived in Melbourne, and we went there to pastor a church. So we spent a few weeks uh, in a, just staying in a house, and during that time, uh, before we settled into our own home, Em had a dream. And she came out to me one morning, and she said, I had a really scary dream last night. She said, I dreamt that the devil came to me, and he told me he was going to kill me. So from that time, Em's life started to take a bit of a turn. And she said to me that year, she said, you know what, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, be, to make friends and to be with the cool kids, whatever it takes. And so over that year in Melbourne, that first year, she started to do whatever it took. She started to hang out with the cool kids. She started to dye her hair and, you know, do other stuff that was cool at the time, hang out with the guys, you know. And um, by the end of that year, I discovered in her drawer a piece of cut glass and she was beginning to cut herself because for some young people, as you know, uh, that's what they do as part of the kind of process of managing the anxiety and the pain in their life. So Em was starting to cut herself, but at the same time, by the end of that year, uh, what we had gone over to do was coming to an end, unexpectedly. So we got the kids together and we said, well, actually, we're not staying in Melbourne. We're heading back to New Zealand. We're going to Auckland. And Em was angry, really, really angry. And she wrote a letter to us, and, and she said, I hate you, and I hate your God, and he's just destroying our life, and you're destroying my life. But there was no choice. We came back to Auckland. So when we arrived in Auckland, M was 14. 
and she went off to a school um, to make more friends and to continue doing whatever it took to make friends. And so she started smoking that year. She started hanging out with more and more of the guys down at the park. By the end of that year, she was having sex with her boyfriend. She was going to parties that um, we struggled to bring her home from at any kind of reasonable hour. And she wasn't talking to us anymore. I felt like basically that little gorgeous bundle of joy that I had brought up was gone. I felt like she just disappeared. She didn't talk to me anymore at all. I said to her, I said, look, I've never been the mother of a teenager before. I said, there's two ways we can do this. We can do it as friends or we can do it as enemies. And she said, we'll do it as enemies. And that's how it was. So by the time she was 15, she was smoking marijuana. Um, she was going to clubs and doing all kinds of other stuff that we didn't really know about, we could only guess at. And by the time she got to 16 and the end of her, what we used to call sixth form year, she was well and truly heading off the rails and starting to be quite a negative influence within the family. And so we said to her, we said, well, maybe this isn't the right place for you to live. That was hard to say, but we had to look out for the other kids. So Em left home. She just turned 16, she left school, and she went to live with a friend. Not long after that, she went off to live with her Filipino boyfriend. And she always got a good job. She was beautiful. Our M is really, really stunning. But she didn't feel stunning by then. She was obsessed with how she looked, and she'd started to throw up any food, stick her fingers down her throat. She became bulimic. So she had, was getting more and more serious in terms of eating disorder. She was getting more and more serious in terms of the substances that she was using. She'd get trashed every week, every weekend. She would just drink herself into the gutter. But she lived away from home and we continued to hang out with him and chat to him and seek to hold together a relationship with someone whose life was just way out of control. By the time she got to 21, um, and she was still with the same Filipino boyfriend, but it wasn't going too well. He wasn't kind of shaping up the way she would have liked. Really, she just wanted to get married and have babies and you know, some kind of crazy dream. She was still working in retail, and she always had money, and she always had money to pay for the drugs and the alcohol and the things that she wanted. And uh, she was sitting on a bus one day, and she heard some girls talking about how they'd become Christians. And she came to us and well, she, she rang us up and she said, you know, I think I should become a Christian. We're like, okay, that's all right. Yep, right. But, you know, it was so clear that, you know, her idea of becoming a Christian was, you know, I want God to make my dreams come true. And she wanted God to be some kind of Father Christmas that would, you know, convert the boyfriend make him be nice to her, make him want to get married and settle down and have babies and give her all the things that she wanted. But God didn't do that. He's not Father Christmas. So that didn't last too long, a couple of months maybe, and she was back out again, and she went off in a whole new direction. She got a really cool job in the city, uh, down High Street, 
and uh, she started to hang out in the clubs. She got a new boyfriend. He was a DJ. He was super cool, super cool, gorgeous, gorgeous guy. But they started doing heavier and heavier drugs. By this time, she was into the methamphetamine, and she was into the, the, um, the drug pills. So she was on uppers, she was on downers, she was on diet pills. She consumed every substance that you have never heard of. And we would go out for coffee, and I'd say, oh, hey, and how's it going out there in the drug world? And, you know, what kind of things are people using these days? And she'd tell me about all these substances. And, you know, so she would tell me all these stories. I mean, she actually rather thought she was sort of the Florence Nightingale of the drug world. And she was helping people and, you know, rescuing this one and that one. But her life was just getting deeper and deeper out of control. By the time she was 23, um, she fell pregnant. And she came and she said, oh, I'm... I'm pregnant, you know. Same, same boyfriend, and, but he didn't want that baby. And we said, come home, honey, just come home. You know, we'll convert the back room, have the baby, look, just come home. But he was like, do you know what? It's me or the baby. She chose him. So he had her first abortion at 23. That was really hard. And really from that time, you wouldn't have thought things could get worse, but they did, because she just gave up. Really, she didn't care anymore whether she lived or died. And she became more and more unemployable. She just, you know, sabotaged every job she got. She could get jobs. And each time she'd get a new job, I'd think, oh, maybe, maybe she's going to turn the corner now. That's a great job. She's got a job at Country Road. Awesome. They... You know, they were going to nurture her into management. And, but nah, she just sabotaged it. She didn't care anymore. And so she got deeper and deeper just into that crazy, crazy world. And uh, she, after another year or two, she kind of said to the boyfriend, look, you know, why don't you just go over to Australia? I mean, they were so deep in debt. They were dealing. They were so deep in debt. They had you know, cars they'd never paid off. So she said, look, put all the debt in my name. Why not, honey? I don't care. And you go over to Australia and you go, you know, earn us some money and I'll just hang out here. And by that time she was pregnant again. She didn't tell us about that one for a while. So he went off to Australia and she had another abortion. And at that point, really, she was completely unemployable. She was living, actually, in a flat out here, out north and. Uh, with some other addicts, and it was just, it was disgusting. It was filthy. She was just totally out of control. She got a new boyfriend. He was out west with the gangs. He was dealing meth, and uh, they lived in a little shed out the back of his place with the pit bull and the big bike, and he started to throw her around. He started to hit her. She didn't care anymore, really. She might spend the night in the park. Sometimes I picked her up from the hospital because her health was deteriorating more and more. It was just completely out of control. Em was hitting 25 by then, and it had been a long, long journey of walking with her. And you'd always think, you know, like, could it get any worse? And it just 
kept getting worse. She got to uh, 26, and the police were after her. There was one Christmas where she was meant to be over at our place, but instead she was uh, managing a police raid on their place. And uh, she thought, this is getting a bit serious, I'm going to end up behind bars. So she rang up the old boyfriend who'd gone off to Australia, and she said, you know what, I, maybe I need to leave the country. And so he flew her out and flew her off to Australia. So she left. She really had decided to get off the meth by then, but the way you get off meth is that you take a lot of other drugs. So she was heavily into a lot of marijuana, a lot of alcohol to manage that addiction to try and get off the meth. So she went off to Australia. She was 26, and um, she came back briefly for the wedding of our youngest daughter. And she looked around and she thought, wow, you know, my brother, my sister, they seem to have a life. They seem to have the things that I would have liked to have. But she just knew her life was like nowhere. And so she went back to Australia and her and the boyfriend talked about how they might kind of turn it around a bit. And they had a chat and they decided that the answer would be to go to the Gold Coast. You know, the place of dreams. So she came back that Christmas. She was for the first time in her life, beginning to think that maybe life was just a little bit too much out of control. Going to Australia had not really turned it around the way she hoped. She knew by then that the substances, the whole lifestyle, was starting to kind of completely control her, and she had realised she was not in control of that. So she talked for the first time, maybe, about needing to change and Maybe she needed to sort some things out. And she said, oh, maybe I should go to church. And I'm like, forget that, honey. I said, you'll turn up at church and you'll put on the good face and you'll say all the right things and everybody will think you're really great and you're really cool. But I said, they won't see past all the lies and all the garbage. I said, you've got to get with people who are more like you, people who are traveling that same journey. So she went back to Australia and they, um, sure enough, took out more debt and landed on the Gold Coast, and they went to Surfers Paradise, and it was the February after that Christmas where she'd been back, and she rang me up one morning, about four o'clock in the morning, and she said, Mum, Mum, I've decided I need to go to rehab. I mean, actually, there weren't a lot of choices at this point. They'd both been kicked out of work, they had no income, all they had was debt. Boyfriend said they were living on grass clippings. So she's like, I decided to go to rehab. I said, okay, that's maybe a good idea. She's 27. And um, she said, uh, so I've Googled rehabs, as you do, on the Gold Coast. And she said, there's this place that comes up. It's called Transformation Ministries. She said, do you know what? Before I got kicked out of work, I was working at the Crown Plaza Hotel. And she said, you know, I used to come out of work every day and I would look across the road and there was this massive sign and it said, Transformation Ministries, Jesus. Do you think I should go there? I'm like, okay, do that. So over the next couple of weeks, she went in to see them and she thought they would go, yay, you know, we've been waiting for you all your life. Um, instead, they said, well, you definitely qualify, but we haven't got a bed. She said, well, I'll bring my own. 
And uh, they said, well, no, honey, you've got to wait till one comes up. She had this lovely picture, you know, Sandra Bullock, 28 days, you know, she was going to go to rehab, she might take the dog, and she was going to take the exercise machine, you know, and she might have to buy a rehab wardrobe, but, you know. Anyway, she had a very pretty picture. But over those two weeks, she um, rang somebody up, and she got a resident. She said, what's it really like? And they said, well, you wear a uniform, you sleep in a room with another girl, you have half a wardrobe to share, and the household has about 10 other girls in it. There's a lot of rules. You have to memorize Bible verses, and you have to go to church at least twice a week. She's like, whoa, I am not going there. So she texts me, nah, not going there. It's all brainwashing. And I said, well, honey, it's life or death. You choose. So they rang her up one Thursday, and they said, well, we've got a bed. They said, you're either in here the next day or it's gone. So she went out, she bought the rehab wardrobe all the same, and the next day she was in rehab. I want you to just hold that story because I've got another story I want to share with you. And I'm just going to read you this one. This is about a woman I haven't met. For those of us who endured it, the summer of 1980 in Miami was nothing to smile about. The Florida heat scorched the city during the day and baked it at night. Riots, looting and racial tension threatened to snap the frayed emotions of the people. Everything soared, unemployment, inflation, the crime rate and especially the thermometer. Somewhere in the midst of it all, a Miami Herald reporter captured a story that left the entire Gold Coast different Gold Coast, breathless. It was the story of Judith Bucknell. Attractive, young, successful, and dead. Judith Bucknell was homicide number 106 that year. She was killed on a steamy June 9 evening, aged 38, weight 109 pounds, stabbed seven times and strangled. She kept a diary had she not kept this diary, perhaps the memory of her would have been buried with her body. But the diary exists, a painful epitaph to a lonely life. The correspondent made this comment about her writings. In her diaries, Judy created a character and a voice. The character is herself, wistful, struggling, weary. The voice is yearning. Judith Bucknell has failed to connect. Age 38, many lovers, much love offered, none returned. Her struggles weren't unusual. She worried about getting old, getting fat, getting married, getting pregnant and getting by. She lived in stylish Coconut Grove, which is where you live if you're lonely but act happy. Judy was the paragon of the confused human being. Half of her life was fantasy and half was nightmare. Successful as a secretary, but a loser at love. Her diary was replete with entries such as the following. Where are the men with the flowers and champagne and music? Where are the men who call and ask for a genuine actual date? Where are the men who would like to share more than my bed and my booze and my food? I would like to have in my life once before I pass through my life, the kind of sexual relationship which is part of a loving relationship. She never did. Judy was not a prostitute. She was not on drugs or on welfare. She never went to jail. She was not a social outcast. 
She was respectable. She jogged. She hosted parties. She wore designer clothes and had an apartment that overlooked the bay. And she was very lonely. I see people together and I'm so jealous I want to throw up. What about me? What about me? Though surrounded by people, she was on an island. Though she had many acquaintances, she had few friends. Though she had many lovers, 59 and 56 months, she had little love. Who is going to love Judy Bucknell, the diary continues. I feel so old, unloved, unwanted, abandoned, used up. I want to cry and sleep forever. A clear message came from her aching words. Though her body died on June 9 from the wounds of a knife, her heart had died long before from loneliness. It's the story of another woman. Hold that story. I've got one last woman I want to share with you. And it's a woman from Scripture, from Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took a place at the table. There was a sinful woman in that town. She knew that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so the woman brought some expensive perfume in an alabaster jar. She, sh she stood at Jesus' feet crying. Then she began to wash his feet with her tears. She dried his feet with her hair. She kissed his feet many times and rubbed them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who asked Jesus to come to his house saw this, he thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know that the woman who is touching him is a sinner. In response, Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he goes on, he talks about that woman, three women. What do they have in common? Emily, life completely out of control, Judith Bucknell, whose life actually wasn't out of control. If you'd looked at her, you would have thought she was fine. And the woman of Luke 7. The thing that I saw in common with these three women is that each of them was in the most incredible pain. Each of them in their own different way carried around this intense, personal, overwhelming agony inside themselves and they each felt very very alone i want to tell you part two of emily's story do you want part two okay so em went into rehab you know god is good just a cute little story is that uh, the november before she'd gone into rehab she had been still in uh, uh, sydney and she'd been on a train, and uh, she rang me up. She was on her way to one of her jobs before she got kicked out. And uh, she said, Mum, Mum, I was on the train, and this guy, he, he um, came up to me, and he, he just sat by me. He seemed really nice. He just wanted to talk to me. And she said, oh, it's amazing. You know, he seemed so nice. I thought, oh, well, I'll let him talk to me. She said he told me all about how he'd become a Christian, you know. And she said, and then as he got off the train, he, he just handed me this thing, and he said, you know, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And she said, I looked at what he'd given me. She said, it's called the Father's Prayer. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's all scripture and it's written as a prayer. She walked into rehab and they handed her the Father's Prayer. I mean, God had led her to that point. But Em was still tricky. 
she was still tricky. She went into rehab with all her games and all her lies. And After eight months, I had actually scheduled to go over and visit. Uh, I'd been speaking to her every week on the phone. We had our Saturday call, and uh, she wouldn't let me not have the Saturday call. And, you know, it had been not easy. She'd been going through quite a big time trying to get through the program and, and live in that difficult place. And um, so she'd been there for eight months, and I thought, well, she's making it. You think she's making it after eight months? So I booked to go over, and I was to arrive on a Thursday. On the Tuesday night, she rings me up. Mum, mm-hmm. I've been kicked out. Your heart just sinks to the deepest level. Okay, where are you now, darling? Well, she said, they kicked me out because, you know, I was using something like months ago. And they're so strict around here, she was really angry. So they kicked me out on the street with this other girl, and, and like, so we had to go back to the boyfriend. So, you know, like, she had no income, she had no money. She was on the street, she went back to the boy. And I said, well, it's good that I'm coming on Thursday, darling. Um, so she's like, yeah, yeah, it'd be great to see you, good to see you, but I thought I'd just better let you know before you turn up. So with heart, just, you know, you can imagine, I flew to the Gold Coast on the Thursday. And uh, I'd booked into this motel. It was going to be there for a few days, and Em was meant to come and stay with me for a few days. But she turned up with this girl. So this younger woman, she was only 21 at the time. She had had a horrific journey in her life, and she, she had cuts over every part of her body. Um, but she was a sweet young thing, and, and, and they were both really angry, you know, that they'd been kicked out. How dare someone kick them out just for using something, I don't know, sniffing something, you know. And um, so anyway, I got them to tell me the whole story of what had happened and how it had come about. And, and uh, you know, it didn't seem like they'd done anything enormous, but yes, they had used. And so, but they were so angry, they were never going back. And I said, well, you know, what is the, the plan? You know, I said, well, I mean, like, we're allowed back in two weeks, because that's the program. You're allowed to go back in two weeks. But if you go back, you have to go back to day one. Well, there was no way, especially MIM, was going to do that. So they fumed away and told me the whole story, and I kind of picked up a few threads, and then they went off to bed. I got up really early the next day, because when you go to the Gold Coast, you're and a clock is sort of different, and I got up about 5 a.m. and went and walked the beach. What was I going to do with these two young women? I was only there for like three days. I was not bringing him home with me. So the next morning, um, so I got back there about 7 o'clock to the house, and I went in, and they'd both been, you know, sleeping on the couch, and I said, okay, girls, time to get up. We're back in the program today. Oh, right, they sat up like little bunnies. And I said, okay, well, program is that nine o'clock is devotions. So I want you to have breakfast, sort yourselves out. By nine o'clock, I want you on the couch with your Bibles. We're having devotions. Oh, right. So they hopped up like little bunnies and they made the bed. And, you know, they'd been trained well by now. And they made their breakfast and cleaned it all up. And they got their Bibles and they were sitting on the couch by 10 to 9. Great. Win number one. And... Uh, this is amazing. So anyway, I said, okay, well, step one, 
1 John 1, 9, you know, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it doesn't matter what the program thinks or says or whatever, we're going to go with 1 John 1, 9. So we're going to have repentance and confession. Because I picked up, you know, they still thought they were Christians, these, these young girls. Right. So anyway, they bowed their little heads and, and this first girl starts off and she tells me about all these things they'd used, a whole lot more than sniffing the deodorant. And uh, so it all came out, you know, yes, we did this and we popped those pills and blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, and they all confessed. I said, right, 1 John 1, 9, you have confessed before God. You are forgiven and cleansed from that. So let's just pop that aside. I said, what I'm hearing you say to me, girls, is that you still believe that you are followers of Jesus. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And actually, you guys think that you would like to really be some, you know, help to others who also struggle with drugs and stuff like that. Yeah, yep, yep, they wanted to be, you know, helpful in the community. Okay, I said, well, um, if that's the case, you need to be still on a track of learning and, and becoming those people who are going to be helpful in the world. So I want you to go off with your Bible for about an hour and, and listen to what God has to say to you about where you should be for this next part of the journey. So off they beetle with their Bibles. I couldn't believe I was getting away with this. And uh, so anyway, Em comes back an hour later, and she was fuming, fuming. The steam was coming out her ears. I'm like, whew, that's interesting. So anyway, we got through the day. We had jobs to do, and I went down to the program. I had a chat to them. They're like, yeah, this is how it goes, and yes, she'll, you know, she can come back in two weeks, and blah, blah, blah. So by the end of the day, I finally managed to get them into the spa pool, and I said, what's going on? You know, come on, talk to me, honey, talk to me. She's like, God says I have to go back. <laughs> oh, really? Tell me about that. She says, well, I know there's a devil, and he wants to kill me, and he just wants to pull my strings, but, you know, God looks just the same. He just wants to pull my strings and tell me what to do, and he says I have to go back. Well, what are you going to do about that, honey? I suppose I've got to go back. So um, anyway, we sorted out the other girl, and she went back to her pastor up the line, and, and Em accepted that she was going to have to go back. So that was great. That was amazing. That was a miracle. And uh, so, but where was she going to stay for the next two weeks? So I'm like, all right, um, where are you going to go? So we bump into this guy on the street, and he's like, oh, yeah, I know some girl lived down Palm Beach, and she can come pick you up tomorrow. You can go and stay with her. I mean, talk about God just being there every step of the way. It was amazing. So the next day, I'm going to get on a plane, and this big red convertible drives up, and this surfy chick comes out who loves Jesus with a passion. She's like, come on, honey, come and live with me. And so that's what Em did. She went and lived with her for two weeks. She prayed with her. She was just an absolute angel. And from that point, she changed. That was the point of Em's life, where she truly bowed the knee, came into the light, and met her Saviour. And as I got back on the plane, I thought, wow, that was amazing. Do you know, what God did there was incredible. What God has done through this whole journey is amazing. But do you know what I also thought? I thought, do you know, Ruby, what you did there was pretty amazing too. <laughs> I thought, you know, the way I was in that situation was different 
to how I'd been with M throughout her life. I thought, what was that? Do you know what it was? And this is my one word to you today. I wasn't afraid of her anymore. Do you get that? I wasn't afraid of her anymore. I wasn't afraid of what she was going to think of me or that I would lose the friendship or whatever, that she was going to get angry. I wasn't afraid of her anymore. And the thing that I just want to say to you today is, you know, there are people out there. There are Emily's, there are Judith's, there are all kinds of people out there, and they are in pain. Whether they look like it or not, your neighbours in your street, your workmates, your friends, there are people who are carrying incredible pain in their life. And all I want to say to you is, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Just walk towards them. Just nudge into their lives. Nudge into the hurting places in their lives. Don't be afraid. You know, I worked at a woman's refuge and we used to get volunteers come along and you know, they want to help out and hang out with the ladies. But they'd look at those angry faces. And they'd look at those lives that were so different to their own and they would melt away. They were afraid. They were afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because they're hurting and they're dying. Judith Bucknell, she never found anyone, ever, to meet her where she was at. Em, she had me. She had other people. The woman in John 7, she discovered Jesus. May there not be Judith Bucknells in your street or your neighbourhood who never meet a person who's not afraid enough to go and sit with them, hang out with them, and nudge into their hurting space. So that's all I want to say today. Don't be afraid anymore. Don't be afraid don't be afraid. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are amazing. You are incredible. You came into this world and you were perfect and you just hung out with all the wrong people and you were called a friend of sinners. You sat with them, you talked to them, you weren't afraid of them. Jesus, I pray that by your spirit you give us the courage to go out into our world and to sit with people like you did, to sit with the discomfort of their pain, to be bold and courageous in loving them, in speaking truth into their lives. Lord Jesus, here we are. You see us, you know us. Take us and use us in your wonderful and powerful name. Amen. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.